Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello and welcome to this edition of America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Preview. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. First up on the show is John Kachia, the Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data, which is the authority in cannabis market data analysis. He's going to talk about what's going on in the federal decriminalization on how momentum may have slowed down and how the slowdown may affect the ultimate passage of this legislation. Next up is Gary Robertson. He is the co-founder of the band Journey and the co-founder of Guild Extracts and Cow Labs. Guild Extract Products, award-winning cannabis concentrates including THCA Crystalline. And Cal Labs was founded as a medical plant tissue culture company and the forefront of the cannabis cultivation and extraction process. Major Scott Husing, United States Marine Corps Reserve, recently completed a journey of over 3,000 miles from San Francisco to Southeast Florida, stopping along the way to help communities understand the issue of veteran suicide. And last up is Deborah Fur Holden, PhD from the University of Michigan State. And she is an endowed professor for public health and she's Dean of the Public Health Integration and Director of the Flint Center for Health Equity. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation. And this segment, Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape, is presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data. Joining us today is the Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data, John Kajia. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure to be back, Dan. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to talk with John today about, he was on recently talking about his, his first impressions of the Schumer bill. And I thought it would be a good idea, since their whole company is about cannabis, that we bring him back on and ask him to tell us what does he think are the things that we as lay people should be paying attention to, to see what's happening to determine the likelihood of any legislation coming out of the Congress this year. So John, what do you think? I think it's already quite clear that the bill as it has been currently presented is not going to be able to get through, through uh, uh, the Senate. Um, there's, there's a lot of the issues that have sparked a lot of concern, uh, both amongst uh, lawmakers on the conservative and on the liberal side, uh, as well as within the industry. So a few things that I, I would suggest uh, watching for. First is just the overall political climate. If the uh, extraordinary kind of debates uh, and contention that's currently happening uh, in the Senate and in Congress more broadly around issues like infrastructure bill, the um, um, kind of federal tax policy, uh, even around uh, kind of COVID-19 and the national response to it. Um, you know, all of that is churning the water and I think souring the water for uh, there to be comity on an issue like cannabis, which, you know, candidly, I don't think there's a lot of Republicans who, who um, uh, have a lot of invested political interest to stick their necks out on this issue. Second, so, John, just I'm sorry, John. Then, mm-hmm. I just I, 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 yeah. I don't normally do this, but I, I have to on this particular subject. Um, we heard this week that the president believes he does not have the votes in the Senate to get the infrastructure bill passed, and there have been several bills 
that either by filibuster or inability to muster enough votes, the administration's programs seem to be in serious trouble across all fronts. And when we said on the last program that everybody was optimistic when when Biden came in uh, about the cannabis uh, getting done, that the, you're, you're suggesting that the president's program is running the president's agenda, including cannabis, is running into heavy waters. And the likelihood is that there may not be passage not only of his cannabis reform, but many other of his programs. Am I hearing you that you're agreeing with that? So, you know, there are some legislative maneuvers uh, such as reconciliation, which they, they might be able to use to get some some of the key set pieces through. So, for example, I think there's a debate happening right now uh, around uh, using reconciliation, uh, which is a kind of budgetary procedural process to get a, an infrastructure bill through. But this is part of just the function of having the Senate 50-50 divided between Democrats and Republicans. If there's a 60-vote requirement, it means you've got to be able to poach uh, at least 10 Republicans to support the issue. And given the infighting or given the, the contentiousness of the uh, air in, in Capitol Hill right now, um, there's not a lot of uh, um, uh, Republicans who are willing to break party ranks or interested in breaking party ranks uh, to, to support the administration's uh, um, uh, major policy initiatives. Uh, on cannabis, I actually think it's a little bit different because even excluding the uh, challenge that there's going to be to secure Republican support for this. I think this bill, as it currently stands, is already drawing some concern within the Democratic Party um, uh, around some of the provisos here, uh, whether it is around the, the nature of the proposed FDA's governance of the cannabis industry uh, or about the idea of federal uh, a 25% federal excise tax on cannabis that uh, in markets like California would mean that um, you're, you're dramatically increasing the price of legal cannabis uh, and thereby creating a very strong incentive for the perpetuation of the illicit or unregulated market. Due to the structure of the proposed regulations, um, I think that they're, going to do, they're going to need to do quite a bit of work uh, to secure um, full support within the Democratic caucus let alone um, uh, the, the challenge that they're going to have trying to get um, uh, 10 or more votes from the Republican Party and to get this federally approved. John, I heard late last night that there was a procedural vote on, this, on the uh, infrastructure bill, procedural vote yesterday, late yesterday. It did not pass. So it couldn't even get through the procedural vote um, and there are some people now saying on the Hill that it's basically um, um, dead. In addition to that, um, Biden came out yesterday, and this is, again, the, the, it's going to take some of the wind out of the sails of the Democrats. He came out yesterday uh, saying that he thinks that, hey, I'm, I'm not in favor of uh, – getting rid of the uh, 60-vote requirement uh, because he thinks that it would be chaotic in Congress if we got rid of that. 
and that um, it wouldn't be good for the country. So he's somewhat thrown, at least for the moment, he's always, he's very, <laughs> he does get his schedule changed or, or around or takes things back. But he, he was, um, I think he was very disappointed that the, uh, the, even the basic fundamental procedural vote didn't pass on the infrastructure bill at a billion, which is down from 2.4, 2.2 trillion that he was looking for to a trillion dollars. So um, there, there are a lot of things that are going on, and there's more and more division. And we're coming into um, not too far away a, a year to the, to the midterm election, which the sitting party for the White House historically loses votes. Well, they only have to lose one vote to lose the majority in the, in the Senate and probably four to six votes to lose the majority in the House. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on that could uh, adversely affect lots of legislation and the ability for the Congress, both the Senate and the House, to work together. Um, do you expect that turmoil to continue, or do you think there'll be a um, a, a quieting down and a need to want to get something done? Well, you know, we look at the world, the, the, the world through the, the, the lens of the cannabis industry and, and how all of these machinations are implicating our market. And, and I would say this, we, we actually think it may not necessarily be a bad thing if, uh, for, for the local, the state and local operators, if the, if the federal proposed legislation didn't pass immediately. Um, I think it would be important to be able to try and get banking reform done. I, I think that continues to be a major drogue on the industry's growth. But some of these other provisions, uh, th- there's actually some utility in terms of being able to uh, support the growth of really vibrant state-based markets if the federal government does not yet intervene in this space. For the people who are currently operating in the space, one of the big concerns has been as soon as the federal government flips the switch, then you have the big box. Uh, uh, the, the major kind of consumer packaged goods companies, alcohol, tobacco, big box retailers, all looking for ways in which to get involved in this market. And sure. the longer that that gets delayed, the, the more opportunity that the current stakeholders uh, in this industry have to establish size, scale, efficiency that makes them much more competitive when the market does finally go federally legal. So, right. um, you know, we, we've been speaking to some really savvy stakeholders in this space who are essentially tuning out the noise at the federal level because they, 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 are, they don't believe that um, the federal action is going to be happening, at least federal uh, legalization is going to be happening anytime soon. And they're, they're really working very aggressively to build capacity uh, at, in this state-based model we currently have um, uh, so that, you know, by the time, uh, whether it is two years, four years, or eight years from now, that we finally do see federal legalization, that they'll be in a very strong position uh, to defend their their um, uh, stake in the market as uh, new entrants start to come in post-legalization. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. You know, the the every time that the president gets something defeated, uh, even by the minority of, uh, of 50 votes in the Senate, the filibuster of 60 is it becomes a bigger and more daunting task as we get closer and closer to uh, the midterm elections. And we start the campaigning uh, in about seven months for the midterm election. 
uh, we're going to see if the agenda changes on the part of the president and the part of the Democrats. And I suspect, as you alluded to just a few months ago, there are two, two very different factions within the Democratic Party, the, the more moderate and the far left. And right now, the left is to have control of the party, but I don't know whether they're going to have it for how much longer they're going to have it. Anyway, we're, we spent uh, a lot of your time, and I appreciate that you're being generous with your time. We've been speaking with Monica Gia, the chief officer for Frontier Data. And uh, thank you for joining us, John. Your insights are always greatly appreciated. It was my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. If you miss any of this interview with John, go to w420radionetwork.com. Go to the archive section and look for this show. You can also see John on many, many other shows. The smart guy should listen to what he has to say. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, today a fun show with a musician, a producer, a yacht captain, a sailor, a longtime cannabis connoisseur, founder of Guild Extracts. He's an author. What does a man not do? He's a renaissance man, Jerry Robertson. Welcome to the W420 Radio Network, brother. How are you? Hey, very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, your tales are legendary going back to the day you were involved with Carlos Santana and Journey and the Cannabis Connection. So tie us all in, because we all know that uh, cannabis is a creative spark and music and uh, good weed go together great. Yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us the origins of how you got together with Journey. Was that first or was Santana first? And tell us. Yeah, the Santana band. Um, I started working for Santana when I was about, I don't know, 18, 19 years old. And uh, we went on, we'd go on the road and set up the, the, all the equipment for them. Uh, we turned that into a company called Primo Productions. And then uh, we went worldwide with, with Santana for, I don't know, about five, six years. And then uh, we turned that whole program into the Journey Band. Wow. So now was your role as as what was your role actually um i was like an entrepreneur i already made a bunch of money myself so i had some money to to spend on equipment and i bought a house for all the rock and rollers uh we were from lafayette you know so i brought the band over the frumious bandersnatch band from lafayette some of the steve miller guys uh to forest knolls out here in marin county Awesome. And, that's uh, California. That's Northern California for the uninitiated or out yeah. of town. Yeah. That's so this, right. when we talking about the late sixties, early seventies, uh, early seventies. Yep. 1970. Well, so, I remember, well, I remember meeting Carlos Santana and telling him about my experience at the Bay area music awards, the Bammies, when I thought his band was transcendent. And he said, it's always great 
when the music plays the band. Absolutely. And uh, I love that. Yeah. What a, what an amazing guy, amazing musician, just a incredible uh, personality and, and a friend, you know? So, you know, we've, we have a long history. Sure. And tell me how the weed world infused some of the creative spark for the musicians that you work with and, and, and around. Right. Um, well, uh, the first time I smoked pot, <laughs> uh, it was during the Vietnam, uh, when Vietnam War was just starting to rage. And uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service uh, was the band. And, um, and I, I watched them play and went outside and, and smoked some pot with a couple of guys and it changed my life forever. So got me into the music world and got me out of Vietnam. Uh, and uh, just I just wanted to make music, be with the music, play the music and and just enjoy it. What wonderful as a quick messenger service said, have another hit. Of sweet air, right? That was yeah, a great they did. Signature song. So, Carlos, as I as I think I know correctly, is is a big fan, and uh, and I know the guys at Journey are. So, we gotta share some inside stories that wouldn't sell out the the guys. But what what can you share with us? With the with the Journey guys? Yeah, or and with Carlos. I mean, how that impacted or influenced his music and and in the herb world and the like. Well, you know, like I said, I was there for the music and the fun uh, and the experience, the travels. <clears throat> um, the last um, the last gig that I really did with them was in Europe in um, uh, at the Montreux Jazz Festival. So, um, you know, uh, just traveling the world with them and just experiencing all that music. Uh, we'd be on the road with Jose Feliciano and buddy miles and um you know all these uh, incredible characters bb king and i got i got to meet all these cats and hang out with them and you know it's just a a thrill of a lifetime well we all know that a lot of these guys like to fire it up <laughs> maybe after the show but what about before the show what was what was the regimen like the routine uh well i mean most of the guys were climbing out of bed at you know six o'clock in the afternoon you know getting ready for the the gig that night so you know everybody was getting excited and uh you know some of them drank some of them took acid some of them smoked a little pot some of them did some other stuff and uh, you know it was just always uh you know it was just always a, a a different scene and and the music changed every night i have to tell you you know all those songs when they're being live on stage you know they change them up in the middle and they do different stuff you know and it was always new every night you know it was a, always an amazing show sure now when i met your son brad who is an awesome dude and we interviewed him and it'll be airing on the america's cannabis conversation shortly about the guild extracts the dispense what well, the dispensary actually it's it's a, a company that focuses on concentrates and THC crystalline and molecular isolates. 
I mean, I thought I was talking with a, a PhD in chemistry or something, but, but you've been involved in that and one of the uh, founding members. So talk a little bit about that stuff, which is taking cannabis 2.0 to the next level. Yeah, certainly. Uh, my son has been on the forefront of uh, all this innovation in the cannabis um, business. Uh, we started this company. Oh, well, we've, we've been at it for the better part of 10 years now uh, developing this. Uh, and he just uh, loves being in the lab. You know, he loves um, coming up with new ideas and isolates and, you know, and all this stuff. And, you know, I don't pretend to even know anything, you know, much about it, really. I, I listen, I learn, but, <laughs> you know, it's a, a whole different level. Yeah. Now, THCA powder and batter and live sauce and things that, you know, I'm an aficionado like you and we go back. We're OGs, man. We go back to That's the right. day. But this is all new to me. So what can you share about what your son has taught you as we go intergenerational in the cannabis world? Right. Well, you know, he he just really got on his his phone, really literally, and, and started doing research. And he found all, you know, the places like the Israel, uh, the Israelis uh, and the Spaniards were, you know, really innovative and in, in finding, you know, all of these com these compounds that come out of the cannabis plant. So he started studying and figuring it all out. And, you know, pretty soon he's in the lab uh, doing the same experiments that they were and and drawing these um, incredible compounds out of, you know, out of the oil. So that's, you know, that's really where it started. And he just accelerated pretty soon. We were making THCA, which is a non-psychotopic um, ingredient that people can take in large doses for their health. And if they, you know, they can't stand the high part of the cannabis plant, uh, then they get all of that uh, medication and, and they can, you know, it helps, helps them. Yeah, the evolution is incredible. And it, it's really a shame that there is very little federal research that it has to be entrepreneurs like yourself and your son with Guild Extracts doing a lot of the, the, the challenging, you know, new, new world research because the federal government doesn't want to either put money or do anything to make it happen. That, no, that's no, not at all. The, the pharmaceuticals are... You know, pharmaceutical companies, the uh, the big oil production companies, and you know, cotton, and you know, there's a, a tons of inter industries that are just against the cannabis movement uh, for a lots of lots of reasons. Yeah, it threatens their turf. Well, speaking <laughs> of turf, when I when I met your son on your beautiful Empress yacht in Richmond Harbor in Northern California a few weeks ago when you kind of connect gathering that it's just a, a blast. Uh, he showed me a photo of you, Jerry. You're sitting down. Well, you should tell the tale. This is 1974 in Afghanistan and you're smoking hash. What is this all about? How did that come to be? Well, uh, so it was the last show of the Santana um, tour in Europe was in Montreux. And my girlfriend and I bought a car and started driving around Europe. Uh, we ended up down in Greece and then up to Turkey and off to Afghanistan we went. Uh, you know, Kabul didn't look very far when we were looking at it in Istanbul on a map. So uh, we drove all the way there and up by the Khyber Pass. And on the way out of the country, we stopped um, 
at this, uh, at an oasis, literally. And that's when I met that family. And I, uh, it was the last day we were really in Afghanistan. So I shaved off a bunch of hash into that nice big hookah pipe. And we smoked it up with the, <laughs> with the family. It was just was that? wonderful. Yeah. Now they were the ones as a host welcoming you with their Afghani hash. Yeah. Well, I had it. I had it with me and I had that pipe with me. Um, but, you know, in the desert, you know, you come upon these oases and literally an oasis with uh, olive trees and um, and it's a fortress. I mean, behind us, you can't see it in the picture, but there's literally a fortress. And behind that fortress is a, is a, a, a reservoir of water. And they rule the whole region because they have that water. And that was a family that we just stopped on the side of the road to get under the shade of the trees when they came down to see who was on their property. I and see. we ended up being really good friends. Um, I had some medicine with me and then they, they had some medical issues. I gave them all my, you know, my whole medicine cabinet. And then also with all the Afghani money I had in my pocket. And of course they, they loved me for that. And, and we were forever friends. Wow. So what was the experience like in uh, smoking the peace pipe outside of Kabul, Afghanistan? <laughs> that's, that's wild. Not many people <laughs> tell that tale. Um, it was an amazing experience. They, they, you know, the Afghanis were the most beautiful people in the world. They really were. They, everywhere we went, their arms were open. They wanted us in their homes. They wanted to cook for us and know who we were. Um, it was just, they're amazing people. It's just, just a horrible shame what has happened to the beautiful country and the beautiful people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad there was a, there was a bond for you, and uh, facilitated by the great, wonderful world of herb. That that is awesome. Hey, I understand you had an interesting Father's Day, a rock and roll Hall of Famer hanging out. What's this? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my friend Ross Valerie and his beautiful wife came to my house here in Sausalito uh, and my son and his uh, beautiful girl and my new grand boy, Cole, uh, and my friend Stephen. And we had a beautiful barbecue and uh, enjoyed the day. And then we had a nice jam. Um, at the end of the day, we did, I don't know, we did like four or five songs and Ross played bass and I played my guitar and sang, and uh, Stephen played the backup and rhythm. It was a little coal. We had a little coal on the conga drum. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. For those who don't know, Ross Valerie was the original bassist for Journey in a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Now, do I understand correctly that you're writing a book about some of your exploits in the music world? I am. I am. It, it should be out. Um, I'm hoping it's out in the in the fall, uh, probably uh, probably by the winter time uh, next year, we'll have this thing out and hopefully published and on the shelves where everybody can read it. Yeah, what's what's the focus? Um, it's uh, it's the primary uh, uh, title is going to be from Santana to Journey, uh, a trip with bands. That's potentially going to be the title, and okay. it's. Uh, it's literally, you know, from my early days with Santana and, you know, uh, producing the Journey Band and being on the road with those guys and and lots of uh, cool stories in between, you know, some of the stuff that happened on the road and 
meeting some of the stars and hanging out with BB King and you know stuff like that. And don't forget Lucille, right? <laughs> yeah, I can't forget Lucille. <laughs> hey, you got to give us a little snippet. You got to give us a little sneak peek. Uh, give me a cool Carlos Santana story that will be part of your book, so we can you know get wet our appetite a little bit. Okay. Um, well, there's there was a little incident um, in uh, Puerto Rico uh, when we uh, when the the stage was stormed by the crowd got past the barriers and uh, they were all climbing underneath the stage and uh, forcing the, the stage to almost collapse. And um, we, uh, we all had to gather all our stuff up and run for the run for the cars and limos who were waiting for us. Um, and uh, so that's, that's one story at, you know, grabbing Carlos by the, you know, by the back of the shirt and kind of dragging him along with me to jump in the in the, while the crowds were like really li literally storming the stage wow so that's one little thing yeah how about a journey tale G give us a journey journey okay let's see a journey story well i'll tell you what um when we first made that band when we first had the band together so that was neil sean greg raleigh ross uh valerie and george tickner uh and the first time we recorded uh, the drummer was late. That was uh, Ainsley Dunbar hadn't hadn't shown up yet, and uh, so I was uh, I sat in on the on the traps and played drums for the, for the tune up for the recording, the first recording we ever did with the Journey Band. Oh my god! Look at you! Look at you jumping in when needed. Uh, you awesome. Hey Jerry, yeah, right. it was super. <laughs> Give him the hook. Give him the hook. <laughs> <laughs> well, did he did he supplant you? Did he re re regain his throne? What happened? Uh, yeah, well, I tuned it all up for him, you know? Oh, I had it all you. tuned for him when, he, when Ainsley came in the room and sat down. Well, good. good. <laughs> Jerry Robertson, you're a cool dude. Thanks for sharing some fun stories. Look forward to reading your book. Do you have a title yet? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to call it uh, from, Santa, from Santana to Journey, A Trip with the Bands. Okay, yeah. Or, I, I or, something, like, or something like that. Okay, that works. If you have any suggestions, you have some suggestions, <laughs> let me know. Well, rock on, man. That's awesome. And uh, oh. continue success on the seas and on land and the guild extracts and, and the yacht, the Empress. Uh, hopefully we can get back on the Canada Connect um, ship once more. Yeah, no doubt. You're, uh, you're always invited, uh, Rich. I really, uh, I really appreciate you having me on your show today. Well, it's, it's a blast. You're a good dude. This is the W420 Radio Network. If you want to hear this again or excerpts, you go to W420RadioNetwork.com uh, slash archive. I'm Rich Walcott. Thank you, Jerry Robertson. And we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers 
customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information it helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation, and joining us today is Marine Corps Major Scott Husing, and he's here to talk about several things. First, uh, welcome to the program, Scott, and thank you for your service. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, we were actually, Dan, or, uh, James Lowe and I were talking about you yesterday, singing your praises, uh, veteran <laughs> advocate, and it was great. To, I don't know if your ears were burning or not, but it's always, always good to be with you. I'm, I'm, you know, I, um, uh, you were going to send me some, uh, information on where I mail some players for you. So I didn't see that. So maybe it just slipped your mind, but if you could send me some a mailing address, I'd be happy to send you some songs and stories for soldiers, additional MP3 players. So tell us about your foundation. Save the brave.org was started in 2015 with one of my fellow Marines. He's a, amazing entrepreneur uh he also was a machine gunner in my my company when we fought together in ramadi iraq his name's nick velez and we just experienced the loss of one of our squad leaders simon lifke he killed himself up in minnesota and we decided that we just didn't want to sit down and watch this happen to any more of our brothers because those numbers the statistics 22 a day or whatever it is that the right. da reports the dod they're they're friends they're their fellow Marines and warriors I fought with are not statistics. So we threw some money in the bank and we started SaveTheBrave.org. And it's a 100% veteran nonprofit that connects combat veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress through outreach programs. And over the last six years since then, we had one fishing trip that we started because we thought that would be cool. This year, we've got 36 trips servicing hundreds of veterans, but over the last six years, we've helped thousands of veterans, active duty, gold star families, uh, first responders, and it's been an immense honor to be a part of this organization. And when I say we're 100% nonprofit, I want to clarify, none of us on the board take a single dime. We don't take a salary. We do this all because we love helping others. And at the beginning and the end of every day, I think that if you're not helping other people, you're really not helping yourself. And that's probably been biggest part of my transition is just staying connected, staying very active. And as you know, I, I do that in a lot of different ways, not just through my writing and sharing stories, but the recent ride we did again this year as I rode my Harley Davidson across the country for 3,161 miles. And uh, we're going to continue to do this and we continue to get a, a lot of support from donors we're privately funded, and we need the support of everybody out there to keep doing what we do best, and that's connecting veterans in a safe space. I think it's uh, – I agree with you. When when I started my foundation for soldiers uh, seven years ago, about the same time you did, there are three officers of the of the foundation, and they all said that, number one, they would none, not take any salary – or benefits, and they would pay their own expenses, so that 100% of every dollar we raise goes to purchase and distribute to our MP3 players' 
maintain the website for veterans. So I, uh, uh, I believe in what you're doing and, and because we've adopted it. So your ride was 3,100 miles. How long did it take you to drive, to ride? So this, the ride for the Braves, as we call it, is, was, again, it was another one of those things born out of tragedy. Uh, after my good friend Dave White, we went to high school together. He was a Navy vet. He killed himself in Montana. Last year, his mom asked me to come to South Carolina and give the eulogy, and I decided to kind of bucket list it and hop on my Harley and ride out there. And Nick Velez got a hold of it, started promoting it, and people found out I was riding my Harley across the country and back 5,150 miles last year. And it just kind of blew up, and everybody rallied around us. And this year, the guys talked me into doing it again, and I said yes, and we rode kind of a Pony Express from San Diego all the way to Miami, and we hit cities along the way. And what that did was it served as this unifying event last year and and this year, and we'll probably do it again next year, more than likely. But it brought out so many people, so many amazing riders from American Legion riders, veterans, civilians, all to be connected and and led and, and brought together. And what that did was really exposed the best of the human condition to me, seeing and meeting so many thousands of people and we stopped at local small businesses. They hosted events for us at, you know, Marty B's place in Bartonville, Texas, all these places along the way. And people just gathered and donated. We, we raised a ton of money this year as well to go back to veteran programs for SaveTheBrave.org. And the ride itself was, again, one of those things that, you know, again, born out of tragedy, but it, it was really – an amazing experience for me because I'll, t- I'll share one story. I was this year I was riding from Mississippi down to Alabama. I just like was crossing the state line. We pulled into this gas station on Highway 45, and this kid, this big country kid in this white pickup, pulls in and he says, "Hey man, how do I get one of those T-shirts?" And we were wearing the Ride for the Brave official T-shirts, and he gets out of his truck, gets a T-shirt, and then he tells me about his cousin who was a Marine who served in Iraq and shared some stories. And more profoundly, as he gets back into his truck and closes the door, he sticks his head out his window. He says, hey, man, what y'all are doing is important. Keep it up. And he just drives away. And that right there was so emblematic of the type of people that I met along the way, This, you know, the true American fabric of great Americans who really are out there. They're, they're not – hidden anymore because when you get out on your bike and you ride across the country you get out and you volunteer you really see the true essence of what we are as americans and and not what's fed to us from mainstream media through the massive 60 inch filter on most people's wall and that that's a really cool part of what we do to connect people and uh that the ride was it was just amazing i tell you i'm I'm gonna do it again next year we've already got a ton of support lined up Good. Well, we'll we'll keep in touch, and we want to want to follow that. the The last thing I want to talk about is uh, something that's important to me: uh, how the the VA has put restrictions on medications for veterans to deal with uh, traumatic brain injury and PTSD, and also sleep deprivation. 
And two of those are one is CBD and one is cannabis. Um, the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs uh, has and and the uh, Defense Department have have put out several releases over the last year, saying to veterans, if you take CBD and it has THC and there's any level of THC in your blood for a blood test, you could lose your pension and you could lose your hospital benefits, healthcare benefits. And so veterans have chosen not to take the risk, but what happens is the VA gives them narcotics and they become addicted. Um, I have a doctor friend who has a foundation that treats special operations personnel and who could discharge from um, the veterans facilities in, in, in Dallas, Texas. And he tells me that he gets people that are referred to him. Uh, they come in and he does a drug test and they're so full of opioids that the protocols that he wants to use can't help them until they've de- detoxified and got the, the opioids out of their system. We have a story on our website about a veteran a Navy SEAL who was injured nine times and effectively was discharged on a medical discharge because he couldn't function because he was basically an opioid addict, and they sent him on his way. Um, and his family intervened and got him involved with CBD and cannabis to try and wean him off of the opioids. So it's it's a it's a problem that that we have stuff out there, CBD and cannabis that's all natural that can help <clears throat> the suicide issue, which you're talking about. Um, and yet the the government refuses to do anything about it, no matter how much the science shows that these all natural products can help. In fact, Scott, I can make this statement, and I know it's true. There's never been a person who has died of an overdose of either cannabis or CBD. None. Never. And and so I I'm on a mission to try and get the 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 VA to make more medications available to treat veterans who are opioid addicted. And I don't know whether you see those people in your travels across the country, but it's really a it's a serious problem. And we 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 are, we are continuing to put people at risk of committing suicide because um, <clears throat> the doctors are telling us now that the way to suicide is sleep deprivation. If you don't get enough sleep, your body can't function. You can't make proper decisions. And so we think with CBD and cannabis, you can get that REM level sleep for veterans and get them healed so they won't reach for a gun in the middle of the night when the terrorists come. They'll reach for our MP3 player and a bottle of CBD or whatever. Um, so your gentleman that you talked to us about who had killed themselves, were they feeling they were PTSD sufferers? Well, again, I, I'm not qualified to talk. I'm not a medical professional. I never profess to uh, have all of that information. But whenever there's large amounts of alcohol involved, I know having having been down that road, 
as a depressant that, you know, there, that creates a lot of uh, anxiety and depression they're dealing with. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, I, I don't know what the toxicology was on, on those two. One, one was, uh, Dave bring himself to death. Um, Simon shot himself, um, and nobody really saw the signs coming uh, because they were both engaged at the time. They were texting. They were, you know, they it just really was no warning signs that people were acutely aware of, and th that's one of the things that we have to really be cognizant of as friends and family is when guys tend to even remotely become isolated or make statements uh, or abuse alcohol or substances of any kind, we got to be tuned into that and really reach out or throw them, a, throw them a lifeline and try and pull them to safety. Um, sadly, there's, there's some people that refuse to grab hold and, you know, we try and jump in the water and, and sometimes save them, but tragically some are just, just destined to, to sink. And, right. you know, I think they're, Whatever the whatever the modality is that works for you, whether it's cannabis, opioids, I, you know, pharmacology, what, whatever it is, whatever works best for you, I think is important. I think it's the same can be said for what we do in the nonprofit space. You know, we we do a lot of offshore fishing, but maybe fishing isn't your thing. Maybe riding your Harley is. Maybe riding your bike. Maybe it's hiking. And I like to think that in the nonprofit space. You know, we've done a really good job over the last 10 years of creating safety nets, so to speak, so all of our veterans can pick and choose. And there, there's a lot that are very well established that are very credible, like SaveTheBrave.org and others that have the capacity to really help these guys. And then once we have them on board, if they need further treatment, we have a great network of resources through clinical professionals that we can vector those those veterans to. And I think that we're in a good position now with the next tidal wave of veterans who are getting off active duty. You know, the, the guys like uh, my peers, the senior enlisted, the senior officers, that they've really compartmentalized all that trauma for the last decade, and they're going to have to unpack that eventually and, and hopefully mm. – they do it in a, in a productive, constructive way through things like we do, like giving back and staying engaged, not drinking themselves stupid or, or abusing opioids or narcotics in any, any way, form, or fashion. I think that that's really the message we're trying to get out there to empower uh, our veteran tribe and, and let them know that there is a huge network and a, and a, and a group of people that love you and are willing to help you along the way through that transition if you're struggling. Well, thank you for your time today, Scott. And uh, how can people learn more about your organization? They can go to savethebrave.org, and you can find out more about our trips. You can sign up for a trip. You can buy merchandise and show your support, or you can click and make a donation. You can make a one-time donation or a monthly recurring donation. You know, that's the call to action to listeners, five, ten bucks a month, less than the cost of a tank of gas, unless you live in my state of California, of course. Um, you can follow the Ride for the Brave at Save the Brave Org on Instagram. We cataloged this, this year's ride on video, and there's a ton of great shots from our media team. If you want to get involved, go to savethebrave.org. Send us a message. We respond to everybody's 
messages and emails out there, and it's just something we're really happy to do. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Hey, thank you, Dan. Take care, brother. My pleasure. If you missed any of this terrific interview with Scott, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com, go to the archive section for America's Cannabis Conversation, and you can download this interview and listen to it in its entirety. Thank you, and we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome to the conversation and join us for a second time is Dr. Deborah Furholden, PhD from Michigan State University. She is the C.S. Mott Endowed Professor of Public Health and has probably written more papers than I have, which is tough to do, but she obviously has a lot to say. Dr. Holden, thank you for coming to the conversation today. Thank you for having me back, Dan. I'm always, always up for a good conversation. Thank you. Well, tell us about your new initiative. Yeah, so I'm in I'm in Genesee County, Michigan, and what we're seeing, and a lot of states will be going through this as they start to reform and change their marijuana laws, is we have provisioning centers that are coming into our community. And so what we've tried to do is say everybody has a dog in the fight um, with how we sort of move forward in this new era, where in many states marijuana has either been decriminalized medicalized or legalized. So I don't fault the, the, the businesses that are coming in. There's a whole new marketplace that's been opened up, and I believe in an open marketplace. The problem is that marketplace is not fairly and equitably accessible to everybody. You need at least a million dollars and some political friends to open up a provisioning center in the state of Michigan. You've got to get through planning commissions and zoning boards and all of that, and that's a very political process. Then you've got to have a strong business model. Then you've got to have the startup funds to be able to get your building ready, to get your products ready, and all of that before the doors can open. So if you can imagine, how many of us just have a million dollars lying around in the bank? Not and many. definitely people who have, yeah, not many. And definitely people who have been the victim or the on the, on the negative consequences of many of the laws that are in place. You know, you get a felony conviction. It, I call it the scarlet letter. It becomes nearly impossible to get employment. If you have a felony conviction, when you, get, when you go into jail, if you were on Medicaid before that, you lose your Medicaid benefits. And when you come out, you are no longer allowed to live in public housing and certain federal entitlements are no longer available to you. So we've got a lot of people, and I don't know if people have really thought about all of the tentacles that reach out from some of these drug laws and the negative impact that it's had on individuals' lives, 
on the functioning of families and on the overall functioning of mm. communities. And so we I, thought, okay, great. So we are putting the press on our legislators. We want our legislators to enact laws and policies that will help us to redress some of these historical wrongs or some of the historical impacts that these laws have had on people. And we're also asking the people who are in power, the people who do have the privilege of having a million dollars in the bank, of being able to navigate the political landscape and the administrative process of opening up these marijuana centers. We're asking them to join the fight. So what we've done in Flint, which I'm super proud of, is we brokered an agreement with a new center that's coming in, and we said, would you be willing to be a partner with us, with us in this fight? And they said, sure, what would that look like? So we said, we're interested in two main things, equity, leveling the playing field, and restorative justice. So what they've agreed to do is to give 1% of their top-line sales to a fund that will go to a local community foundation that will be run by citizens and members in our community who have been affected by marijuana laws, people with the public health expertise, people from the business sector. This will provide an opportunity for people who have previously been negatively impacted by old marijuana laws to now become stakeholders in potential opportunities from these new laws. It's transformative, like totally transformative, and it's top line. Their business plan, and I can't name the company, for, you know, it will be for them if, you know, we do this for a year and it works well. I really want to give them all of the credit because this is just good stewardship, in my opinion. They don't mm -hmm. owe us anything. This is a business. But what we realize in public health is getting all the sectors involved, not just public health. The money that we have for public health pales into, in comparison to the money that you have in business. You know, the, the, the literally the advertising budget for big tobacco is more than three times the entire budget of the National Institutes of Health, just their annual advertising budget. So, mm -hmm. you know, public health is a little guy in, in the fight, but we're an important voice. So we want to bring in the business sector. We want to bring in community. We want to bring in citizens with lived experience who've been impacted and collectively build models. We've got legislators at the table, collectively build a model that begins to restore people to whole and level the playing field so that everybody has skin in the game. Is it open? Are you operating now? We are navigating right now the process of getting uh, the proper zoning for the site. So if all goes well, and it has been like pushing a boulder uphill, but mm -hmm. again, we've got some critical players. We've got people in the business sector. We've got the owner of the building uh, who's on board. We've got many of our elected officials who are on board. Strong support from other um, business owners and members of the community where the, the center is going to go. And most importantly, we've got people in the community who've been affected historically by some of these drug laws who have said, we want this. So if all goes well, the door should open within the next three to four months, and I would love to come back and give you an update. One sure. last thing i got to share. Yes. yes. One last thing. The other piece of this um, agreement that we um, have, have um, reached is that they will employ 75% of the staff at the center 
will come from the city of Flint. So they will say they are saying not only are we going to come here, their business model is strong. Their anticipated daily top line sales is thirty thousand dollars a day. Their anticipated revenue is thirty thousand dollars a day. They're going to employ seventy five percent of the staff from the city of Flint, and they've made an agreement that the demographic profile of the staff will closely mirror the demographic profile of the city. So if the city is 55% African-American, 55% of their employees will be African-American. They are providing a living wage, $18 an hour, as a starting salary for staff. They get full benefits, which includes health insurance, paid days off, and 401K benefits, retirement benefits for the staff, and they've added the real big bonus, which is an educational contribution for any staff who are pursuing college degrees, whether they be undergraduate or graduate degrees. This has the potential to be transformative. And what I really love about it is it's big business saying we're willing to share a bit of the profits to help restore people to whole and join the restorative justice movement. So I'm super excited to see how this initiative goes. I can imagine we're going to have some bumps in the road and all of that, but all of us who are at the table are committed to moving forward because if this works, what a beautiful model this could be where, you know, these, this new marketplace and these new business owners become a critical piece in the process of helping to level the playing field. Is this, uh, do you believe that this is scalable to go to other cities, not only in Flint but around the country? I think it's absolutely scalable, and the business side of it is because the money that's going back to community is going to a local nonprofit community foundation, that money is provides them also some tax credit. So not only can they exercise goodwill, but they are also then – because, you know, when you pay taxes, you know, it goes into some state general fund and – the, the, how that money is, is then dispersed and, and used to take care of the state's needs totally resides in the hands of people who some of us may have elected and some of us may have not. This actually puts a little bit of the say on how resources that our tax dollars generate back into the hands of the people. Um, and so I think it's a great model, and I think it's absolutely scalable. And it's nothing that we would force, but it's like goodwill, being a good steward of opportunity and privilege. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Holden, and and we do want to hear from you, but I suspect we'll have you back on before your, the 90 days. You're a terrific guest. We've been speaking to Deborah Fur Holden, Ph.D., who is the C.S. Moffat Endowed Professor of Public Health at Michigan State University. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. You're welcome. If you missed any of this terrific interview, and it's important, you should hear it, go to W420RadioNetwork.com and go to the archive section and look for Dr. For Holden, Ph.D.'s interview. There's another one on there, too, so listen to both of them. You'll be better off. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data. 
and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. W420radionetwork.com.